everyone. Good morning. Thank you for joining. Today is Seeking Sustainability Live number 204. I'm JJ Walsh and we're talking with Jane Nakata, who is a podcaster and life coach. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, good morning everyone. Thanks for joining. I'm JJ Walsh and today we're talking with Jane Nakata, another podcaster and life coach based in the Tohoku area. Is that right, Jane? Yes, that's right. I'm in Iwaki City, Fukushima, which if you look on the map, you'll see we're just on the border of Tohoku with Ibaraki on the Pacific coast. So nice to talk to another female podcaster in Japan. <laughs> yeah, there's not that many of us. We are a rare breed, but yeah. a growing a growing population as well, which is exciting. It's fantastic. And especially during coronavirus, it's a great way to connect with other people and share your ideas and hopefully inspire people who are maybe going through similar struggles. Um, yeah, it's a great new medium. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. How did you get started with podcasting? So it was about three years ago, and I was going through a transformation of my own, transforming from someone who did not want to be in Japan potentially or living in this disaster zone to someone who was making a commitment to really getting on with my life and enjoying my life here in Japan. And I was looking for voices of my fellow foreign women living in Japan, and in particular women like myself married to Japanese men, potentially not living in a big city like Tokyo, and I couldn't find them anywhere. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I will start this thing called a podcast and share stories of women like me doing what I'm doing. And that's, yeah, so three years later, nearly 100 episodes later, we're still going with the Transformations with Jane podcast. But as you said, it's been a way for me to connect with so many people I wouldn't normally have a chance to speak to. It's really grown my network. And yeah, it's definitely... Um, help me to feel less alone and that is one of the messages that I often get from listeners is thank you so much for your show I feel less alone and it's great to know there are other people out there just like me who are trying to do their best in this uh, you know tricky place that it is to live Japan yeah yeah well I know that you've helped so many women along the way um, with your coaching but also with your podcasting and because now this month is actually the 10th anniversary of what happened in Tohoku with the Tohoku disaster, and you were living in that area, could you tell us a little bit about your experience 10 years ago? Sure. Yeah. So 10 years ago, I was living here in Iwaki City, and I had been for 10 years already. And I had just built my own home. My husband and I had just built a brand new house six months earlier, and I was expecting my first child. I was seven months pregnant. And on that day, my husband had gone to file his taxes and forgotten something at the tax office. And he called me and said, please come and bring this document that I need. And so I got in my car and I drove to where he was in town and gave him the paper. And because I was pregnant, I wanted to go and check out Toys R Us because that was nearby. So I went in, did a little bit of shopping, looked around, and then I got in my car. I was about to go home. 
and I was driving out of the car park where where we where I'd been shopping and also very near to this tax office and my car started to shake and I thought oh that's an earthquake I've never experienced an earthquake while being in a car and driving before I mean I've experienced a lot of earthquakes um, here both here in Japan and at home in New Zealand where I'm from but yeah, this time it was in a car. So I stopped my car. I thought, well, surely that's what you do. You stop your car. And it just started getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I was driving a kind of a people mover kind of van type car, which is a little bit higher and they rock a lot. And the road was sort of waving or something. And my car was rocking so much that I thought, I have to get out of here. This car is going to tip over with me in it. And that's not a good. Um, so I got out. Surely it's safer for me to be out of this car. And I didn't know at the time, but that is actually what is recommended that you do if you are in a car that you you stop in a safe place and then you exit the car. I did not know that at the time. Anyway, I'm standing beside my car now, and I'm holding onto the wing mirror because that is all I could do to stay upright. That's how how bad the shaking was. And around me, you know, people were who were walking around were crouched on the ground and screaming because they could not stand up. Now that was just such terrible, terrible shaking. There was a lot of noise as well, both from the earthquake itself, the rumbling, but also from the buildings that were just screeching and um, this shat sort of, yeah, a screeching noise was what I really remember. And some of those buildings, they're, they didn't fall down, but they had to be knocked down later on because of the damage they sustained in the in the earthquake. Also, just the air was full of dust and pollen because the trees on the hills nearby would just had all of the pollen shaken off them, and so the air was so dirty. And um, someone said, oh, that sounds very ap- apocalyptic. So, yeah, it was kind of like that, but then it all stopped again. And I sort of looked around and was like, what has just happened here? And a surreal thing that happened was then a bus just drove by with people sitting on it looking very normally and I was like how is that bus still driving but in in shock I I jumped in my car and I drove to where I knew my husband was and we were able to reunite very quickly which at that time was just such a godsend and we heard from the tax office um, staff that there had been a massive earthquake in off the coast of Sendai and that was all we knew and at that time we couldn't call anyone or we'll find those phone lines were immediately jammed. And even as people, as people were crouched on the ground, I could see people on their phones trying to call people. We could not get through to anyone. We didn't know anything. We did not have Facebook or, um, you know, these instant apps that we have these days that will tell you that was a Shindo Yon. That was a, you know, a level four on the, on the Japanese system um, immediately or to, to watch out there's an earthquake coming. There was none of that. And all we could think of was that we have to get home because there's going to be another one coming, an aftershock, a big one coming, and we do not want to be away from our home when that's happening. So we, in convoy, in convoy, we drove home. And all along the way home, it was very, very shaky trying to get home. But um, we were extremely lucky in that the road that we, the route we chose, that all of the obstacles that had appeared such as manholes popping out of the road or brick fences being bowled over and blocks all over the road. None of that was on our side of the road. It was all on the other side of the road and we could sort of had the right of way to to drive smoothly home and we're home in sort of 20 minutes. And 
when we got home, we turned on the TV and started to see, oh, there's a tsunami coming. And we'd actually driven the route that takes you towards the sea on the way home. And we had no concept that we could have been even endangering ourselves by taking taking that route. But thankfully, my house where it actually is, is on a, a hill and quite a bit inland. So there's no risk of tsunami here. But it's we don't have to go far to get to the, there's only a few kilometers to the sea. And yeah, our city sustained a lot of damage that day from the tsunami. And um, I actually have some neighbors who live across the street from me now who lost their home, who lost relatives. And yeah, it's there's just so many people who were affected in that way. In addition to the nuclear disaster, which started to un- unfold from that time on. And my, my husband told me later, he said, as soon as I saw that tsunami was coming, I was really worried for the power station. And a lot of people in Fukushima believe that you know, we were safe. We have a power station here. Why would the Japanese government build a power station in our prefecture if they believed that there was any chance to to have such a natural disaster happen? But as we know now, that was sort of vastly underestimated. And um, yeah, here we are today. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I know it's, it's really a powerful memory um, having experienced that. And also over the years, um, you've kind of been very conflicted, it sounds like, in whether to stay, of course, being a mother, um, even for your own concerns. Um, but you decided to stay in the area. And I came across one of your um, posts and you were saying you were really conflicted about sharing information. And you, yeah. stopped, mm. you stopped blogging. Um, because yeah. of kind of comments from people outside that maybe didn't agree with your your choice. Can you talk about that a little bit? It must have been such a hard time. Yeah, it was. And you know it took quite a few quite a few years to to come back online again, shall we say, after that happened, um, there was a lot of judgment, of course. you know, why would you want to live there? Are you crazy? Um, and if you didn't live here and could see with your own eyes what the actual situation was, if you only looked at media, of course you would come to that conclusion yourself and and think that was the truth in reality. But where I actually live in Iwaki City, there was not a lot of radiation that um, fell here. In fact, a lot of it flew right past us and went to places like Chiba. Um, it, a lot of it went further to the north and to the west thanks to the wind that day. So my home was spared. I am able to come back to my own home thanks to the direction of the wind, that is all, yeah. And that good luck was somebody else's bad luck, yeah. Um, and the reason- Isn't the, the, that incredible? Cause you hmm. often saw like during that time, I, I'm in Hiroshima, we were very far away, but of course, no matter where people lived in Japan, everybody was concerned should we stay? Some people immediately went out of country, right? And were advised by their country to get out. Um, There was a lot of misinformation. I've talked with Asby Brown about SafeCast and people starting to um, combine data from around Japan just so that people could have a little bit more understanding of the actual situation. And And like you said, the radiation does not spread in a in a concise circle 
So when you, when you see the government like evacuation orders, which is just a concise circle, and yeah. you're thinking, but that's not actually how it moves. And you're talking about Chiba being more strongly well, affected, yeah, right? Just just be, yeah, it just depends how the wind direction was, the you know how strong the wind was at the time, and yeah, just by pure luck that our city was spared a lot of radiation. And once we were able to measure what the situation was with our own Geiger counters, we didn't have to trust, you know, officials. We could actually see with our own eyes, okay, it's no different here than to some parts of Europe, which are still, you know, still have radiation from Chernobyl, you know, exactly. So that was really, for me, that was really good to know that my decision to stay here based on science rather than emotional um, decisions from reading media stories that are designed to make us feel stress and fear. That's what they're trying to do. But to be able to make a decision based on science was how we decided to to come. Well, for, I was not here during the worst part of it. You know, I evacuated myself. We were very lucky that I was prepared for this disaster. And that was due to the Christchurch earthquake in New Zealand happening two weeks earlier. And seeing that happen in a place where earthquakes don't happen in Christchurch in New Zealand. As a New Zealander, no one would have predicted an earthquake like that. And seeing that, I knew that I had to prepare. And so we had a tank of gas in our car. We were able to drive away. And we were also lucky that we had some information coming in from overseas that potentially the situation up the road was not as good as the government was not making us believe, but trying to, to stop a panic from happening and and all of the, you know, the disaster that would have been in itself if the Japanese people had panicked. So we were ahead of the wave of people who decided to evacuate from Fukushima. We also had a place to go, which was Totori Prefecture. My husband's hometown is there. And that was far enough away that we could feel safe, um, even though we actually had to go and stay with my in-laws who live by the sea. <laughs> in Totori, but you know it's a different sea. Um, so yeah, we had somewhere to go. We were able to escape. That was extremely lucky, and I was able to stay away until I felt comfortable to come back again, which was some months later after my daughter had been born, and the situation had come a lot under a lot more control. But saying that, we did live with, you know, the fact that they were trying to do something that had never been done before, you know, in that nuclear power station up the road. And that was a stressful time. So I did take myself off the internet. I just decided that I was not going to subject myself to other people's ignorance. And so I stopped blogging and it took me a long time to want to come back. Um, even though I was certain with my own decision that that was the right thing to do. And I'm definitely certain now that that was the right thing to do. We made the correct choice to stay. But yeah, at that time, I didn't want to, why, why should I have to explain myself to random trolls or strangers on the internet? Yeah, I think it was a smart decision. And, you know, it was a tough time for everyone. We were still very traumatized from what had happened and still living with the power station, sort of not being quite under control <laughs> at the same time. So, yeah, and now that things are much, much, much better, um, both with what's happening up there at the power station and with just life in general in Fukushima. It was about three or four years ago that I decided, okay, it's time to own. It's time to own this. It's time to um, step up. It's time to help. 
it's my turn to take a turn because I watch so many people come into Fukushima and Tohoku and help and do everything they can. I, you spoke to Angela just recently and all the amazing work that she did. I could not help. And that just, it really, really, it hurt a lot to just to have to stand on the sidelines with my, my baby and just, just know that I couldn't take a turn at that time. But now it's my time, my turn to take a turn and to, to help Fukushima in any way I can. And one way is to, to talk to you about what is really like here. So that's, that's one of the reasons why we're having this talk today. And I'm really happy to be able to do that. That's wonderful. Um, I also, I talked with Jess Hollams and when she was coming over as a jet on the jet teaching program, um, she was assigned to Fukushima and at first she was very conflicted and of course all the people around her, I think she came from Australia, were saying, what, you can't go there, no, it, it's so dangerous, yeah. right? Yeah. But once she started researching more and actually went past all of the the news and the media yeah. with the hype. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so difficult because it, it becomes entertainment and it becomes part of the the news cycle that that uh, the networks are using to get more people to to log in. And it's like yeah. you said, it's not it's not exactly accurate. And then the government might not be telling you enough. But then, you know, international media might be telling you things that aren't actually true. So. Uh, she ended up coming and you ended up staying and then realizing what the actual situation is and then being able to share that. Um, I totally understand how it was so difficult for you to be part of that news cycle right away. Um, and it must have just been exhausting. Everybody contacting you saying you can't go back there. You can't live there. Um, yeah, exactly. Loads right. of um, people had an opinion, obviously, from their armchairs and other places in the world. And even, you know, even on the day that it happened, a lot of people were saying, well, get away from there. I said, I don't know if I can actually leave. So I'm just going to stay until I have confirmed that it is possible to leave in a safe manner because I could end up in my car on the side of the road stuck somewhere where I could have been safer at home in my actual house. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a tricky time. And, yeah, I'm glad we're through that now. Yeah. But even just yesterday, um, actually, my mother in New Zealand told me that, you know, it had been on the news that Japan was having the 10th anniversary and that they'd had, um, you know, a soundbite from one Japanese woman saying, don't go to Fukushima. And I was really upset that that was the extent of <laughs> their media coverage for Fukushima, that they somehow found this one person who said, don't come to Fukushima, but just not the case at all. And it's very actually really irresponsible because you are not, you're not referring to a power station when you say Fukushima. You are referring to a massive swath of Japan that is completely safe to visit. And that has a big effect when, when people use the word Fukushima. And this is, this is a recent thing. I think, could you be a bit more specific? Are you referring to the power station, which is actually in Futaba-gun, which is a very small town? Or are you referring to Fukushima City? Or are you referring to the prefecture as a whole? So yes, yeah, very different things. This word Fukushima does get thrown around a lot and usually not in a good way, which I just find it's really frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And you coming from Christchurch as well, you understand 
um, that connection to having a disaster and then the effect on tourism, the effect on residency. I'm living in Hiroshima. We understand the power of the word Hiroshima. You yeah. are living near Fukushima. You know, there the power of the word and the stigma is really long lasting. And it uh, it's definitely important to talk to local people like you and hear what the actual situation is like for people there. So yeah, it's wonderful you could join today. Your um, comments as well about why you wanted to restart and you really felt passionate about building community once you decided to start communicating again. Can you talk about that? So where I live, it's, it's a city, Iwaki City, but there are not many foreigners here. So as a foreigner, as a, as a mother of two, I did felt isolated. And it turned out that actually everybody's feeling more and more isolated these days than they ever have before because everything's online. And I realized that online does not replace face-to-face. And if we've learned anything in the last year, it's that online is amazing. We can do just about anything online, but it really doesn't replace the face-to-face. So yeah, as I was, as my children got a little bit older and I was able to get out more and start to build my community, I realized that there is an amazing group of women in Japan and they're, but they're also feeling isolated too. Yeah. And even Japanese women are feeling isolated, even though this is their country and this is, you know, where they were born and grew up. And so just making almost everything I do about community has been really successful. Um, at the moment, I am helping a group of women who own their own yukans here in Iwaki City. They're called the Fula Okami. And when I, about, yeah, six years ago, I started working with them. And so I started hearing their stories about what they've been through with this disaster, how it had affected their businesses, and just like how hard they were working to bring visitors back. And my teaching them English was just one of the many things they were doing to try and bring visitors, especially this new wave of foreign visitors who were visiting Japan, um, to our onsen town in Iwaki City, which is called Yumoto Onsen. And seeing seeing these women just like they were teaching themselves hula dancing. You know, they're okamisan, yeah, their business is omotenashi, right? Of taking care of, of guests. But in, in addition to this, they've gone and taught themselves to dance hula while wearing kimono, which is apparently unusual and different and a little bit special. And they traveled around, they went to Tokyo and different places just to bring awareness about our our city of Iwaki. And, and seeing that, I thought, wow, I can maybe I can connect these two communities. Maybe I can bring some of my friends who I know around Japan to this place, this really nice place we have here. Um, it's a really relaxing onsen town that nobody knows about. So it's quiet. There are no tour buses there, you know, which was a bit of a problem in the rest of Japan, right? You couldn't go to Kyoto anymore because it's just overrun with tourists. But here, our lack of tourism could potentially be a plus. Yeah. So I decided to bring some of my, my guests to the, uh, as and doing things like retreats um, and coaching coaching women and having sort of events, live events, and bringing women together in this 
very special location with these women who I had a connection with. So it was a win-win, definitely a win-win, a win for them to use their English that they've been practicing, <laughs> which is now up to six years, but also for um, the women in my community to come together live um, somewhere away from their families and just, yeah, really benefit from being together and having a shared experience. Yeah, so yeah, that's what my podcast is about, all that stuff. That's wonderful. Uh, we have a comment from Terry on Periscope. Thanks for joining, Terry. She says, Rough Guides actually removed the entire Fukushima Prefecture chapter from at least one edition of their guides. I used to like them a lot, but not anymore. So, yeah, there is, mm. you know, we've we've had the same thing. We're in tourism. We're trying to promote the Hiroshima area. And for years, like Lonely Planet, all the travel guides would say, don't bother going to Hiroshima, just go for an hour to the Peace Park Museum and leave. And we were invested here, you know, doing a website, trying to promote so much going on and uh, often had to contact the travel companies and say, listen, it's not actually true. There's a lot of uh, great things to do here. People should spend time, you know. I'm sure you you feel the same way. And Jess Hallam's with her work in Tohoku Travel, also trying to promote the Tohoku brand, right? Like, yes. please yes. spend time in the area. It's a very big area. It's now that, like you said, the Fukushima uh, nuclear reactor area is actually a very small area. Um, but that that stigma really far-reaching, right? Yeah, far-reaching, and you know, I didn't, I did not know that uh, this particular travel guide had uh, removed and not re not yet replaced their Fukushima um, thing. And yeah, we've had to take the initiative ourselves, right? Contact, you know, get out there and tell people about it. And that's what I'm trying to do now. And I'm in a, a kind of a, a situation where there's not many people who speak English who can actually say. Um, you know, native speakers of English who can say in a very clear and concise way what happened because I was on the ground and that I'm still here. There are not that many of us left. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people have left or moved on with their lives, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I really feel this is part of my mission now so when I'm doing this is to be able to help the area that has supported me for 20 years that I've been here. Yeah, wonderful. So you were doing both uh, supporting the local women and doing like English activities and retreats, but it also looked like you were inviting people from other countries to come and have an escape weekend or have a retreat in Japan as well as part of their travels. Can you talk about that? That's really exciting. Yeah, I sort of um, at the peak of it. Yeah, I had actually had people travel here from France. I've had people come from the Netherlands, repeat um, <laughs> visitors from the Netherlands who just loved it so much and had to come back again. Mariana, if you were watching, thank you so much. Um, yeah, they loved it because they could not get this experience by themselves in Japan. There is no way. And they loved that they were going somewhere that nobody else had been. It's not Kyoto or Osaka or, you know, anything on the main main lines. And yet so I realized it was something really special here. And it was a shame that a lot of other things came along and I couldn't continue with the retreats, such as being sent to another country, et cetera. And now COVID, it's not really something that we can do at the moment. But, yeah, having visitors from overseas come and experience um, what I called an escape weekend. Yeah, you can definitely escape 
from everything to, in our little onsen town, that's for sure. And it looked like you also had uh, like a Reiki retreat. You had yeah. Okinawa trips. So you were also doing things outside of your area, like Kyoto or Okinawa as well. Is that right? Yeah, well, at first, that's what I thought I needed to do. At first, I was like, I, I need to take people somewhere exciting. So I would organize a trip to Okinawa or I'd organize a retreat in Kyoto, thinking that that was what people needed. But then one day I realized, well, actually, I could just do it right here <laughs> where I have this amazing network of women who need vis um, visitors to come and stay at their yokan. And I, I can, yeah, coordinate really, really well since this is my backyard. And it took me a while to realize that I didn't need to actually travel all the way to Okinawa. Of course, it's nice to go to Okinawa. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes. But yeah, I actually had, a, a, in Japanese we say like an anawa right here. In Fukushima and yeah that it added benefit of getting people to come to Fukushima for their first time for a lot of them it was their first uh, even people living within Japan it was their first trip to Fukushima and just to really open their eyes and say oh, I was actually a really nice place and yeah I'll go back that makes such a difference and then you're building up uh, more social media content from a wider variety of audience um, who have different networks, and they're also spreading the word based on firsthand experience, which we know customers always value and trust more than any company spiel yeah. or PR, right? Yeah. Mm. Uh, Terry says, I love Hiroshima and have spent most of my summer vacation since 2011 visiting Tohoku. That's wonderful, Terry. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming up here and seeing what we have to offer. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, right? It's just... And it's so quiet compared to the rest of Japan. You can really I, enjoy yourself. I can't wait yeah. to come. I've talked to so many people in the series about the Tohoku area. And I, I think years ago, I did travel around that area. We did a lot of cycling tours and hiking and stuff all over Japan. Um, but I haven't been since 2011 and I really want to go and explore and I can't believe it's one of, well, it is the least visited place in Japan, least visited area of Japan, but it has so much to offer. Amazing. It does. Yeah. And it's just so easy for people to get on that. You know, when you get to Japan or even if you're in Japan, it's just, just to head to the West, you know? that big sort of, it's where it's so easy. There's the Shinkansen and all the things to do. It's a little bit more difficult to turn around and, and head north. <laughs> people don't think about it. It doesn't cross their minds. Yeah. So, and also I think the Tohoku people really not very good at selling themselves. It's taken a while for them to own, own the, what they have up here and, and put themselves out there because as sort of, and people, it's a, a a major generalization to say this, but people are a little bit more quiet and reserved up here, but just really salt of the earth people as well. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your transition. Your your whole podcast title is Transformations. And I, I think that's such a perfect title for women in general, because as mothers, as working women, as individuals, I feel like women do have to transform throughout their lives and careers. So what a perfect title. How did how did you choose that? And uh, tell us about transferring your life to a new country and coming back. A lot of big changes for you. Yeah, well, that 
I didn't put a lot of thought into that name, but at the time I just was going through, like I said, going through a major transformation myself. And so I thought, let's just take everybody, bring everybody along with me. Anybody who's listening with this to this podcast. And at first it was very much an experiment. It was like, I will just do 10 episodes and see what happens because really that's all I could commit to. And I didn't know if it was going to work or if I was going to be able to continue. So I just, I didn't put a lot of thought into that name, but here we are three years later with the same name. And it's been, and somebody said to me the other day, um, yeah, it's Transformations with Jane, but maybe it should be called Transformations of Jane <laughs> because even in the last three years, so many things have happened. Um, you know, I've gone from helping people with their retreats through to, you know, moving to Sweden of all countries. Like how many people in Japan suddenly find themselves moving to Sweden? And that was that was a wild, wild ride in itself. It just came out of the blue, but it was one of those um, opportunities that you just have to take because you don't, because it's the more interesting life leads that way. Even though it was a lot of work and, 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 um, Mendoksai, as we say in Japanese, <laughs> you know, Taihan, difficult. It's not the easy, easy route, but it was definitely the more interesting life is this way. So we, we, um, it was a year and a half ago we moved to Sweden. We were thinking to be there for three years. And that was the sort of the contract that we went over on. But uh, coronavirus came along and a lot of things happened. And that's how we find ourselves to be back in Japan again. So soon, <laughs> which, of course, I was sad about. I really, really enjoyed my time in Sweden. But now that I'm back here, yeah, I'm, I feel like I've got sort of roller skates on or rocket boosters on or something that I didn't quite have before I left, that's for sure. Mm, that experience is definitely, um, I, I don't know, yeah, changed me for the better, perhaps transformed for the better. Yeah, interesting. I spent a semester in Norway and we visited Sweden. Um, so I was there for half a year in Scandinavia. And I was so, as an American, I was so impressed by the social impact aspect of the government and how, you know, they have all these really interesting social support networks. Um, education is free. Uh, they're learning multiple languages from a very young age. Um, the prison system is really considered more rehabilitation and getting back to society and often an open door policy, even in prisons, getting in and out for work. So many interesting, mm -hmm. eye-opening experiences. And I really feel grateful to that experience in Scandinavia in terms of how focused I am on sustainability now because it just, it opened my eyes to so many possibilities about how you could run a community, how you could run society in a different way. Well, I'd love to hear your insights from being in Japan for so long and then in Sweden, like what big contrast did you notice? Were there things you really appreciated about Sweden, which yeah. were a bit different from Japan or vice versa? Yeah, um, if we got all day, but yeah, <laughs> so many things, right? Um, the, some of the superficial things that you'll notice when you get to a country like Sweden is the fathers taking care of their children without mothers around because the mothers are working, uh, doing important jobs. And, you know, something that happened during COVID was that Swedish schools never closed for elementary schools. And that was just because 
the reason behind it what mainly was that they have women doing so many important things in that country that you and so you cannot just close schools and expect them to stay home and take care of their kids they're the doctors they're the lawyers they're the the lawmakers yeah they're doing they're running the country as well so i was really impressed by that um at the time and you know apart from the whole is it safe or is it not but that women are so important in their society that they decided to keep the schools open um yeah just so many things you'll see like these something that you just will not see in japan and just really really was sort of shocked me the first time because having lived in japan for 20 years i'm so used to not seeing fathers with their children but seeing like father friend groups all with little babies like the babies are sort of six months and they're out pushing the push chairs and there'd be like three or four of them they're all out together you know you would often see something similar like, like that in japan but just women only right but in scandinavian countries you will see men out with your friends pushing their babies around you know they're out having a nice time enjoying the sunshine or whatever now, that's this is how it should be why am i reacting so you know how why am i so shocked by this this is how it should be fathers should be able to do this with, with their children and they were having a great time yeah and and i would see fathers in cafes with their kids having really nice lunch and there's no mothers in sight you know they were they were off doing their work that said there's a lot of pressure to go back to work oh sure let me try let me just make sure i'm hitting the right button i'm not gonna tear myself off or something am i back again <laughs> yeah that's magic Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's, uh, speaking to Swedish women, they said to me, you, you are expected to contribute, yeah, to be a contributor to this country. So staying home with your kids, like if you want to do that, it's kind of sort of looked down on almost. That was what they were telling me. So I thought that was interesting as well, that, you know, everybody is expected to contribute um, to the economy, to the, you know, to the country in that way. So yeah, this is kind of a sort of a flip side to it. Um, yeah. What else? Oh, but well, my husband as a Japanese salary man here, um, going to work in a Swedish office with, which is run in a Swedish way. It was, it was mind boggling for him. He came home like for the first few weeks, um, that I was there with him and he was saying, I can't, how how are they getting their work done? 
<laughs> he was amazed that, you know, people would come to work and leave work at all hours of the day, you know, just really flexible way of working. And I said, well, they're obviously figuring it out somehow, you know, doesn't mean just because you're not there all hours of the day doesn't mean you're not getting your work done. That <laughs> They have a more flexible way of working, um, you know, to take Friday afternoons off to go and coach a soccer team as a completely respectable thing to do. In fact, encouraged. Yeah. And especially if you've got something with your kids happening, well, of course you will be able to take time off for that. What are you still doing here in this office? Go, go do your thing with your family. Family life is incredibly, incredibly important. And so I really liked that how they had, well, maybe it's not completely balanced, but they were just a lot closer to getting a really good balance between work and family life than perhaps your average family here in Japan. Yeah, which is kind of on the other scale of it's all work and hopefully you make it to retirement to enjoy retirement, right? Which that's, is yeah. That's a really interesting and important point, I think. And that's something I often rail against in Japan is the concept of how many hours you spend at the office equals how valued you are as an employee. Exactly. And, uh, you know, coming from New Zealand, coming from America, being in Sweden, that that is a very different concept. It depends on how well you do your job, how much you do, not the, the actual results, yeah. hours mm-hmm. or amount of time. Yeah, um, definitely. So that, yeah, that's so refreshing to be around that. <laughs> yeah, and it took my husband a little while to adjust to that. But once he did, he, he really liked it and he thought it was as good and he even said I'm not sure I can go back to Japan now I don't know how I'll go back to working you know the kind of in the kind of way that it is sort of expected here in Japan and and he does a good job of managing that as as far as Japanese people go he's very good at that but yeah even for him he could see there was a huge difference and it was an amazing opportunity to open his eyes to what is possible he never dreamed that you could have such a nice balance of family time and, and, and work and still get your work done and work flexibly when you need to. So when COVID came along, Sweden was ready to work at home because they've been working in a flexible way for a long time. Yeah. Whereas in Japan, it was like a mad rush. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Okay, am I back now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I tried I tried to keep it going as best I could. Um it was interesting being in a different country really really sort of was different. It really was I thought it'd be just be the same, I'll just keep going, but I did feel a little bit disconnected from my community in Japan just by the being you know half a world away in Sweden but I did keep going in the best way I could a lot of that was disrupted by being shipped around during this you know COVID being shipped back to Japan being shipped back to Sweden and then being shipped back to Japan again but I just thought if I can keep this going in a minimal viable product kind of way then and here we are today I'm sort of feel like I'm actually back to doing it at a level I would like to continue at now um, after all of that that's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you you said before it's very difficult to continue with the face-to-face events even though you really felt that was so important in order to encourage 
and really give women a feeling of a break. And I, I think this is so interesting because during coronavirus, while so many of us are working online, this uh, when do I turn off the work question is is often, you know, a lot of women feel like they have less balance now working from home all the time and and managing the house and taking care of kids and I don't know when to stop working. You know, like the the timing is actually sometimes more difficult to manage than if you go into the office. And it's really interesting. Yeah, I obviously I had kids home from school for six months um, during all of this, just due to where we were in the world and summer vacation coming along. And yeah, that is probably some of the most stressful six months I've had in a long, long time in my life. Like, you know, nearly up there with 311 kind of stress of having kids, trying to do things you need to do. For women, it's not been a happy time, I know. So, yeah. But something we did, um, I did encourage women to do during that time was just to take themselves out of the, even if it's just saying, I'm in bed now, and when I'm in bed, you do not come and annoy me. You go to your other parent. Just didn't, like, saying this is a no-go zone. Please do not come and annoy me when I'm in my bed. And at one point, our family was actually sent back to Japan. We had to live in company housing. We're living in a two-room, um, very small, old, old apartment. And all I had was a futon. I had my futon that I was sleeping on. And I said to my kids in the daytime, if I'm in my futon, please do not come and annoy me. This means I'm I'm not I'm off duty. And sometimes I just needed to check out. So just doing something simple like that, like the, just creating a rule making it up and then sticking with it. It can really help, I think, even in these times when we're sort of stuck at home a bit. Yeah, that's it's definitely important, especially with small kids to have boundaries. But then it's, it's also hard for small kids to understand sometimes, right? Like, but mom is there. Why can't I go hang out with her, right? So having kids at home all the time instead of being able to take them to school or daycare is it's definitely hard. That's a oh, real yeah. transition. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So it's, yeah, every day that kids are at school, I'm a grateful parent, that's for sure. Yeah. And then now that my kids are older, uh, teenagers, and they don't need me as much, I do miss that being needed. Sure. You know, all the hugs and everything. So, yeah, definitely enjoy every stage of your, your kids, uh, it, you know, your connection with your kids, because it does really change as I'm they sure get it older. Does, yeah. 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 They say the late, what is it? The days are long, but the years are short. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, especially when they're younger, it feels very long. That's definitely true. Um, do you have any plans this year now that you've, you've only come back a couple months ago, right? It hasn't been long. Um, do you have any plans you'd like to do this year with the podcast or are you trying to do events again sometime? It's hard to know um, if, what's going to happen next with the coronavirus. Um, my podcast, I would definitely like to keep working on that. I've, yeah, since we've been through just so much transition in the last year, I just decided to give myself a break and say this year, Jane, you're just going to focus on your podcast and things around podcasting. I actually help women to launch their own podcasts as well. Um, not just women, anybody, but it tends to be women who I'm helping and, um, you know, helping people with manage their shows and things because that's quite a lot of work. And I decided that's what I'm going to focus on this year and just gave myself permission not to be doing all the things 
and I will see what happens. Yeah. And as we know, um, you know, Tohoku needs visitors. So this year, I'd really like to focus my attention on perhaps traveling a little bit more in Tohoku. Um, normally, I'm sort of split my time between here and Totori Prefecture, you know, the summer holidays and the, and or New Zealand. Yeah, I'm usually trying to get back to New Zealand as well. And I have not had a lot of time to travel around Tohoku. So I thought, well, this COVID is giving me a chance to do that because I can't go home to my own country. So I'm p- potentially able to travel a little bit more um, around Tohoku, take advantage of some of the discounts that are coming out from JR, etc. I'm sure people, it's a big news, right? Um, yeah, and investigate some of the places that I've seen so much about and haven't had a chance to get to yet. So yeah, that's something that I'm looking forward to doing more this year. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's great to take advantage of where you are and uh, use this time when it's a lot less busy to introduce it to people outside Japan or outside the area who might be interested. I'm, I'm starting to do the same thing even in Hiroshima, right? Um, going to Miyajima Island, which is usually so busy and having being so near such beautiful, amazing places. Um, so taking the podcast on the road, so to speak, and uh, that might be an idea for you and your podcast to kind of take it on the road and interview local people and do short videos and stuff, you know, like maybe kind of spread your wings in your nearby oh. area and draw more people in and build a foundation. And then in the future, when you do an event, you've already got all these great examples to send people if they're interested. Oh, and you should also watch this or you should listen to this one, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's the potential is, yeah, if you just even think about it, there's so much potential out there, that's for sure. And yeah, I think we're definitely getting a chance to do that this year. When we can't, we're not distracted by trips home in the summer or, um, you know, people coming to visit us and, you know, there's a week gone, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Let's use this opportunity for, for what it is, yeah. Um, we've got about 10 more minutes. Could mm-hmm. you give some advice um, for getting started with podcasting or things that you found rewarding um, in how you plan for your podcasts? Or if somebody who's listening to this is thinking of trying podcasting, mm. yeah, how do you get started? I think the, the most important advice I could give is to not compare what you are going to produce with someone who is far ahead of you in the game, okay? Do not do that because you will get scared and then you will do nothing. And that is the worst thing that can happen. So my motto is um, imperfect action to get started. So if that is you with your iPhone and your, your sort of mic on a set of <laughs> earphones, in your walk-in closet, recording an episode on a free software such as Anchor, which is run by Spotify, completely free and very, very easy to use, you can start with a podcast with zero yen, yeah, and very, very little, um, yeah, no inf- no investment and very little time, um, knowledge as well. So let's just get that out of the way. It's difficult to start. It's expensive to start. It's not true. And you do not need to be perfect. Yeah, those are the, some of probably the three big things that that stop people from getting going with podcasting. Because potentially you've been listening to podcasts and you love them yourself. Because if you're thinking of starting one, you probably love podcasts, right? You probably listen to them. You probably heard some really fantastic ones. 
those are people who have spent years and years and years um, practicing their craft, learning stuff. You are not going to be able to produce that. But that's okay because you still watch YouTube clips of people, you know, in their bedrooms just talking to a camera that's not not perfect either, right? So, yeah, be careful about who you're comparing yourself to that you don't knock yourself out of the race before you even get started. So that would be some of my um, very, very basic advice. Yeah. Also, that is, you can... That is great advice. I think because um, the whole concept of comparing yourself to others in general especially yeah. <laughs> as women, it's so easy to feel a rivalry or like fight over the small scraps as marginalized group in Japan, right? Or think, oh, there's already other three other female podcasters in Japan. Don't worry, the market is big. And yeah. if you feel like you've got something to say and you want to connect to an audience, just try starting. I mean, yeah. I definitely look at my podcast videos from last year and I cringe a little bit because I was just starting. You know, you don't really know what you're doing. You're nervous. You get less nervous over time. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Confidence comes from practice, right? That's the only way you're going to get it. So start out, do something. Nobody has to hear it for a while. And yeah, learn your craft a little bit. And if you can think of 10 episodes, you have a series. Yeah, and a series is can be perfectly fine. So a lot of people don't start podcasts because they think, oh, I have to do something every week for the rest of my life. You know, this has to go on forever. And that's not true either. Um, you can just create a series of 10 episodes, take a break and come back and do another 10 episodes. If You know, your, your um, listeners will be waiting. They may even be like really waiting for the next 10 episodes if, if it's good content that you've got. So yeah, maybe list up, 10 topics you can talk about or 10 people you'd like to interview and you've got a series on your hands. And I mentioned um, Anchor, which is a free software run by Spotify. Is It's an excellent platform to use and very easy to use as well. So off you go. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like you say, it doesn't matter that there's already 10, 20 women podcasters in Japan. We need more. There are not enough. And I was just, someone said to me the other day, I didn't know there were so many women in Japan doing amazing things. And that's because we don't have enough of a voice. And if you do any, <clears throat> excuse me, any kind of Google search on um, podcasts, you'll find they're mostly done by men still. Yeah, we're a very, very small community. And so there's, there's enough for everybody. Yeah. And just because I listen to this show doesn't mean I'm not going to listen to your show. I, I'm always looking for new shows. We all are. We love to hear stories about what people are doing or any learn learn new things. And especially for women, this is a great way to consume long form content. Definitely. I cannot, you know, sit in front of a TV for a long time. I don't have time for that. I don't have time to sit and watch YouTube videos, but I will listen to a podcast for an hour while I'm doing all the other things I do in my life. Maybe I'll listen for 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, but I will listen. And yeah, you can have a huge impact on people's lives. So yeah, why are you not doing that yeah <laughs> why are you out there making having an impact on people's lives definitely and something that i i heard uh good advice before i got started was ask people to talk to you about a certain subject so if you're just doing it on your own there's a lot more pressure to prepare a lot of things to say um also if you have a guest you just you work off of each other you share ideas um if you're doing things live, you can ask 
uh, people can ask you questions, you can reply to their comments. So then that engagement is another level which helps you get yeah, going. Yeah, it creates and get the content started, for right? you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, going from just me talking about something, which is sort of what I started with, to oh my god, I have to interview someone. I don't know how to do that. That was another hurdle that I thought. But then I just thought, okay, if I ask a question and then I just shut up and listen, I'm gonna figure out what the next question is gonna be. And that has served me very, very well. Ask a question and then actually listen to what the person is telling you you will come out with a very, very nice interview at the end of it, a very natural, conversational, yeah, smooth flowing, fun interview that, yeah, people, it's not, you're not CNN, all right, we're not CNN here. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but also it's it's wonderful when you do ask someone to join you for a conversation and then beforehand you do some research on them and you listen to things that they've done before, uh, you read things they've written, and then your networking is yes. so much more meaningful and so much yes. deeper because you have learned from this person even before you talk to them. And that's exactly. so wonderful. I love that. Yeah, that's great advice. Oh, of course, you want to prepare. You don't just show up, um, try and expect to interview someone. But yeah, the network that you will create from doing this is amazing. And that is something I didn't realize would be a huge benefit of podcasting. And especially here where I live in Fukushima, I can't network face to face with a lot of foreigners. Um, of course, there's a lot of Japanese people to network with. But if um, I want to network with more foreigners, I have to travel to Tokyo for that. But podcasting, yeah, I get to meet and talk to the most amazing people, find out about them in a way that, yeah, in a more meaningful way than just chatting to someone at a networking event. That's for sure. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we have a, a few more minutes. Is there anything mm -hmm. we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? <clears throat> um, I would just like to say, if you are thinking about coming to Tohoku and you are planning your trip, it's very easy to think that you have um, supported Fukushima by coming on the Shinkansen and potentially going to the Aizawakamatsu and seeing our castle or um, spending time in central Fukushima. Those areas were not affected as much as the coastal area of Fukushima. So if you can, really think about how you could work in the coastal area of Fukushima to your um, itinerary. And you don't have to go anywhere near the, the power plant, you know. And we have some of the, actually, we our radiation levels are much lower here than they are in central Fukushima anyway. So in that respect, it's safer to come to the coast of Fukushima. Um, you can use the jawbone line from Tokyo and come straight up here on the Super Hitachi. And that is also included in the JR Pass. So, yeah, definitely make the coast part of your trip. You can uh, do it. We have a lovely cycle road here that is just opening. Well, you can cycle through towns that were washed away during the, um, the tsunami 10 years ago. And so you can really contribute at a grassroots level by visiting. And plan us. to stay a while. Plan to yeah, exactly. stay a Take few nights, nights, look around, uh, walk along the Michinoku Coastal Trail, which we've talked with travel writer James Clark, who wants to come from the UK, spend a month walking that coastal trail, uh, doing nice. a documentary film, writing a book. Um, there's so much beauty along the coast, and definitely the coastal areas were so horribly 
impacted from the the devastating tsunami and are rebuilding and people who've stayed there they definitely need our support um that's to right. go and buy their products and talk to exactly. them and and yeah if you can't come to fukushima you could probably find some of the products in the supermarket so don't be scared to to buy those products they're they're, they're safe you know we have some of the safest food in the world here in fukushima now Thanks, actually. Thanks to the, <laughs> what happened. Yeah. So, yeah, those are ways you can actually really support Fukushima and other parts of the of Tohoku that were very heavily um, hit during the triple disaster. And then just to repeat what you said earlier, um, just to also remember that the area impacted by the nuclear disaster is a very small area of Fukushima. Exactly. Fukushima itself is a very big area. The Tohoku area is a very big area and uh, there's so much to love and explore around that whole area. So don't let just one small area put you off going to that region. Yeah, and don't worry, like it's, you can't just accidentally wander into the area that's not, that you know, that's dangerous you know it's that's not possible okay so yeah even if you decide you'd like to go and visit some of the the towns closer to the power station you cannot accidentally wander into a dangerous area yeah do not <laughs> thank you yeah wonderful well thank you so much jane thanks for joining today yeah thank you it, it's been a lovely lovely time speaking to you today and yeah i hope we can see some more visitors come up to fukushima thanks to this chat today yeah, and that we've so. dispelled a few myths I'd, well. I'd love to come myself. I can't well, wait to come. Well, let me know if you're yeah. coming because I would love to show you around if you great. make it to Iwaki City. That sounds great. Um, if you're interested in finding out more about the work that Jane does, listening to her podcast, finding out about consulting, have a look at janenakata.com. I'm showing it on screen right now. I'll also put the link below. Um, Jane, you're also on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Is that right? Yes, I'm on all of those platforms and I like to hang out on Instagram. Um, it's a really nice platform, but you can find me on Facebook as well. Wonderful. Thank you everybody for joining today and for your wonderful comments. Um, have a wonderful weekend and we have another round of great talks next week. So please join us again. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye, Jane. Bye, Bye thank everybody. You. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me A Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. I really appreciate all of your support, whether it's writing a comment, sharing with a friend, or even just liking. I'm excited to think that wherever you are in the world, you might be getting some good ideas from these interviews in Japan. We share a lot of the same problems with unequal societies or damage to the environment around the world. It's nice to focus on some inspiration, innovation, and new ideas for opportunities to make better choices. Have a great day. Take care. See you next time.